Hello and welcome to episode number 77 of Storytelling with Seth. We're going to be diving right into our next episode and a slew of great stories that I was lucky enough to discover and I'm happy to share with you. But before we do, we're going to have a couple of ads. As I pointed out last episode, and I hope to continue uh, encouraging and re-emphasizing, there will be a slew of new ads currently being offered up through Anchor that I was lucky enough to be a part of and are designed to support all of us as we get closer to election day. I know that every four years it's our opportunity to vote on national issues and so often in between there are the local issues that we can be a part of choosing our own future. These ads are designed to encourage and support your decisions and give you as much information as possible about everything you'll be voting on. Of course, once election day is passed, we will return to all of the regular format, but for the purposes of this episode and episodes coming up to the election, you'll have a few ads and then we'll dive right in to the full episode. It's always a great feeling to share another story with you. Hey there, storytelling fans, fans of stories and more. This is Storytelling with Seth, and I am your host, Seth Singleton. I've got a lot of stories to share with you. I'm going to start out with some shout-outs to some good friends of mine. want to once again thank my good friend, Mr. Tony Farina, for that amazing conversation with Justin. You might know him from Stumptown, Fuse, so many other great projects. I discovered him through a comic book signing at my local comic shop, Cape and Cowley. I was lucky enough to hang out with him and Tony for this really great two-parter. You want to catch part one on Tony's Indie Comics Spotlight. That's over on Comics in Motion Podcast Network. But then for part two, stop on over here and you'll get the chance to hear our entire conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you will too. When it comes to other shout-outs, I also want to Take a moment to recognize my good friend, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Now, Sarah is an amazing person. She's really been a blessing every time she's come on Storytelling with Seth and, and talked about some really important ideas that we don't always consider and how they can be relevant to everything we interact with, from entertainment to fashion to our choices in life and what they're based on. Um, her Colorism Healing Project has been taking a lot of very close looks at how colorism can be interpreted and where it can be recognized. And one of the things that I think is really important is, is an article she brought up. Now this one, of course, I don't always keep up with things as quickly as I would like to. So sometimes I'm a little late to the game in either catching them or sharing them. Back in July, she published a post on her Colorism Healing website about how to be an ally. And it was a live Wednesday workshop where she was joined by her sister, also a doctor. And they discussed colorism, privilege, and how to be an ally. Interestingly, they are sisters who grew up in the same household and have the same mother and father. But because people often assume they're half-sisters, they've addressed the colorism issue for many years and they point out that they have a lot of memories 
Now, they've done a couple of interviews before, one written and one video interview. And in many of those interviews, they've touched on privilege and allyship, but they wanted to specifically and explicitly address it in this workshop because of the increased need for allyship during Black Lives Matter and its movement. So they've chosen in this podcast and this discussion to define and ask the audience to define privilege and allyship and offer their own definitions. Now, Dr. Sarah Webb's sister, Dr. Crutchfield, defines allyship as being willing to put your body on the line for the benefit of marginalized groups. This includes physical time, space, money, and effort. Now, Dr. Webb says that there must be some risk involved. Otherwise, it's merely performative allyship, which I think is a really interesting term and one that I'm going to want to keep in mind. Maybe it's just because there's birds tweeting in the background, or maybe it's because I feel that there's a relevance to performative allyship and what is so many times a desire to be demonstrative, to speak up, speak out. But then there's also a question which is now being raised as what more is being done than speaking up and speaking out? And more importantly, is there any risk involved? This is something that really has me thinking because in my own personal experiences, I've been warned or told that there are concerns about relationships that I have, friendships that I've created, and partnerships and associations that I have made that they feel will put me in harm's way at some point in the future, that I may be viewed by some people on, I don't know how else to describe it, but another side of a line, one in which my friendships are not considered valuable and are actually considered potentially dangerous and or wrong. And that for that reason, I'm putting myself in the crosshairs. I'm surprised by this because I was not aware and actually feel in many ways like I don't do enough when it comes to being an ally or taking risks. And then I'm also concerned because I know that I'm a human being who's done their best to understand where their strengths and weaknesses lie. And one of my greatest weaknesses is confrontation and conflict. And I don't think that I provide the best possible outcomes in those situations. And that more often than not, it's better for people who are used to or familiar with that conflict and confrontation who have the calm, prepared presence to address it and in doing so provide more than I could. And it's a struggle because I know that it's something I would like to improve at. And yet I also know that I've created a a safety system within myself in which I'm more likely to shut down in a greater concern that I don't want to overreact, that I don't want to let my emotions guide my words, but that in doing so, I, I will want or need to reflect. And because of that, I will not be able to immediately participate. 
So keeping all that in mind, to have others say that I have been doing too much or putting myself at risk is an interesting thing to consider when I look at this article and this great post from my friend, Dr. Sarah Webb, and how risk and association and allyship are interpreted by so many. But for right now, I feel like this example being provided by Dr. Webb and her sister are a great guidance. I don't know if it's a North Star. I don't know if it's a compass or perhaps something else. I'm probably still trying to figure that part out. But what I do know is that there is a story and more than one that goes with allyship. Those are my immediate takes, and I'm, I'm going to be thinking more about them in the future. But if you have thoughts about allyship or these definitions or anything else I just described, I'd be really interested to hear them, and I look forward to the chance to sharing them here on Storytelling with Seth or maybe even talking with you in a future episode. Now for this next section, I'm going to be completely honest. I never actually thought that I would find myself on any sort of program talking about soccer. And yet now, thanks to a great opportunity through Elevation 5280 Sports and Anchor, I am the host of a new podcast series called Stories from the Pitch. This has been a really unique experience that all started with great conversation with um, fine people over at Elevation 5280 Sports. And when they were talking to me about the idea of doing a podcast of any kind, we stumbled across a number of topics. And when I mentioned soccer, they pointed out that no one was actually talking about soccer or using it as a uh, focus or theme for their current podcast. This was a huge thing to uh, discover with them. And along the way, we developed the concept behind Stories from the Pitch It's still in the early stages. In a lot of ways, it feels like a rough draft, which is kind of fun. And now that it's here, I get the chance to, once a week, every Wednesday evening, it started at 7 p.m. Central Time, Mountain Time, and now it's been moved to 6. I think it'll stay either at 6 or 7. We're still kind of watching how the other programming is working out. But no matter what time it ends up airing at, the big thing for me really seems to be that I get the chance to find all those great stories, some of which I've had the chance to share here on Storytelling with Seth, which were great stories, and I was lucky enough to work them in as a segment on an episode highlighting news and stories from around the country, around the world. But now I actually get the chance to focus on that, to provide a narrative that centers around all the great stories I can find that have to do with soccer, football, or footy. I know people call it by all sorts of things, which makes it just as much fun to talk about. And I get the chance to focus on local soccer for the Denver, Colorado area, which is where Elevation 5280 Sports is located, as well as national news for men and women and international. English Premier League, World Cup, and so many other great aspects of the game. And then there's also been some really fun stories that I love. They highlight the the parts of soccer, football, footy that really get my attention 
because they have to do with what happens off the pitch, before and after games, when soccer players are just being people. For example, a young woman who was in a coma. She was only 19 years old and had been in a coma since December 15th of last year following a car accident that had tragically killed her friend. Roma legend Francesco Totti sent her a video message saying, Don't give up. You'll make it. And we are all with you. According to the family, that was all it took for her to awaken. And the family believes that now that she has seen her hero and knows of his support for her recovery, that she believes that she can make a recovery. Now, that's pretty satisfying news. In fact, you might even hear the soft rumbles of my French bulldog, Bruno, in the distance, almost agreeing with it. But it's stories like that, stories that now I get the chance to add to a collection on a broadcast like Stories from the Pitch, and I will let you know whenever I think there's a story that I want to share on both platforms. But for some of the more soccer, football, footy-related stories, I'm going to encourage you to check out, if it interests you, Stories from the Pitch, available now, Elevation 5280 Sports, streaming on TuneIn, Mixcloud, and Anchor platforms. I would also love to know if you have a story that maybe you weren't sure would be something you would recommend for storytelling with Seth, but you know would fit on Stories from the Pitch. Please send it to me, uh, find me, message me, let me know. I try and give you all the best ways at the end of each episode. I look forward to hearing your great stories, and I'd love the opportunity to share them on Stories from the Pitch. Now my French Bulldog Bruno is softly snoring off in the distance, and I'll allow that background to be a great stage for us in which to set this other story. This is one that really caught my attention because it combines two favorite things of mine, great writers and comic books. In this case, I'm talking about Ernest Hemingway, who has made an appearance in comics for many decades now, and it has crossed into so many different types of comics where he has been uh, in a Mexican comic book in a cameo with Topolino, who is the Italian Mickey Mouse, and even inspired a character in Superman. The article that I came across describes one example, such as Weird War Tales, 19, or from 1978, issue number 68, published in October of 1978. And in this story, he appears and he just sort of lets you know that he's Mr. Ernest Hemingway. And <laughs> it's a strange appearance to, to see. And then as the article continues along, he makes different appearances that, that feel like they're supposed to be on par with what we know about Hemingway and then also to extrapolate it. Um, the article then continues to a, a full book-length manuscript that has been created. It even includes a forward by Brian Azzarello, the book 
Hemingway in Comics is written by Robert K. Elder. And it suggests the idea that Mark Twain and Shakespeare are far surpassed by the appearances of Ernest Hemingway. Now, this is crowdsourcing information using comic book database. But Hemingway is the most popular. And according to this synopsis of this book, he can be seen battling fascists along fascists along Wolverine, playing poker with Harlan Ellison, and leading a revolution in purgatory in the afterlife, along with appearances next to Mickey Mouse, Captain Marvel, Cerebus, Lobo, and even a Jazz Age Creeper. Now, I'm pretty sure they're talking about the DC Comics character, Creeper. However, this could just be a character named Jazz Age Creeper. The most popular, apparently, caricature appears to be a hard-drinking, womanizing, big-game, trophy-hunting, fame-craving blowhard who pushed his obsession about writing in lean, mean prose to the point of self-parody. And sometimes, Hemingway is portrayed as a hyper-masculine papa, bearded, boozed up, ready to throw a punch. And then there are the occasions when the sensitive artist looking for validation is revealed. I love this idea about seeing Hemingway in different comics and a recent resurgence in his popularity, whether it was in movies like Midnight in Paris or uh, the, I believe it was HBO miniseries that focused on his relationship with another writer and captured a period of time in his life when he was young and known for his bravado. I'm intrigued to see if I end up getting my hands on a copy of and giving a read through Hemingway in comics. I'm impressed by the fact that Robert K. Elder, the author, was able to get this forward by Brian Azzarello and the descriptions he provides of what Hemingway looks like and how he is portrayed. Sounds like something I can really get behind. And of course, I'm curious to hear what you have to say, what you think. Is this something you'll be picking up? If not, why? And more importantly, is there a relevance you see behind a book all about the many appearances of Hemingway in comics? Is this a book you could have written? I'm curious to hear all your thoughts. Can't wait for you to share them with me. Now for this next story. It's a little bit later in the day. The birds have calmed down a bit. You won't hear as much chirping in the background. However, I also feel like that's just a reminder of how this story can keep maybe on the forefront of our thinking. That through every process, there is an experience that feels like an ending. Like the greatest change. And then there can be a moment that follows one that can be encouraging, rewarding, and while not enough to offset the dramatic change that preceded it, can still provide a positive way forward. The story that makes me think of these ideas is one involving a three-year-old Flagstaff boy. He was tragically killed by a distracted driver, and he was three years old. His name was Zadi Tozen So.
And what I love is that he always wore superhero capes to a degree that he was eventually stealing the cape from his sister, who is a Frozen fan and had an Elsa cape. But Zadi would always wear it and run around just like a superhero. To which, finally, a wise and understanding parent, Rachel So Cox, believed that there was only one solution, and that was to get him a cape. And then she found him a Batman costume with a cape, which he just loved. And as soon as he would put on the cape, young Zadi would become Batman. Voice, mannerisms, everything. Young Batman was enthusiastic, driven, committed, and tragically lost his life when he was struck by a distracted driver. And it was on the way home from Best Buy, crossing the street in the crosswalk, when a driver made a rapid right turn, and in doing so, swiped Cox and her son, pulling Zadi beneath the tire. She felt him get pulled away from her, and was with him in the hospital. Friends, family came to offer comfort and solace, and then young Zadi passed away. His mother found new purpose by creating the Zadi Foundation, and this purpose was the basis behind a project called The Rise of Z-Hawk. Now on the cover of this comic, it reads... Zadi, the legend of Zihawk, and his statement is that to the innocents of this city and the bad guys that try to hurt them, I have another name. They call me Zihawk, and I am a protector. Zadi, the legend of Zihawk. The comic was released through Traveler's Unfinished Story series, which tells the stories of those killed by distracted driving. And it is backed by some very notable names within comics, including writing and illustrations from Gail Simone, Jay Calafiore, and Jeffrey Verrege. In a moment that really stuck with me, Zadi's mother described taking the comic book with her out to his gravesite and reading each page down on the grave so that he could see it. She knows that he would have been happy. And I'm encouraged by the possibility that so many lives that are taken suddenly in moments that seem impossible, indescribable, can lead to a project like this and gain the attention of great names who have the power with those names to be more than just an unknown voice but more importantly, a voice whose name can bring others to read this story, bring others to uh, purchase it and support the Zadi Foundation, and in doing so, remind all of us the importance of the lives that we interact with daily, on the road, in every moment that we experience interacting with others, and how important it can be for those lives to carry on, to continue 
with their possibility, and then even when they might be cut short, there are projects like this that can show us what might have been and a sort of immortality that can come with the imagination, with belief, with hope, and with promise. I was really moved by the story of Zadi, the Zadi Foundation, and the legend of Zihawk. And I was really touched that there was included a link to download a digital copy of The Legend of Zihawk. And I look forward to sharing that with you, making it available on an upcoming post, and doing my best to share the message of this great comic, the story behind it, and the chance to be a part of the chain of people passing it along. I hope uh, you get a chance to pass this along to others as well. And then in doing so, you can find yourself another link in a great chain. And when it comes to shoutouts, I also want to take an opportunity to recognize a really awesome guest that I was lucky enough to have here on Storytelling with Seth. I'm talking about Ahmed Alameen and his The Epics of Enkidu. If you remember, he had launched a Kickstarter to fund his original idea, a take on the Epic of Gilgamesh, and turn it into an original comic book that also had a main character, Enkidu, who is autistic and was inspired by a really awesome nephew of Mr. Ahmed Alameen. I recently received an email from Ahmed with a copy of the digital comic. Unfortunately, printing a physical copy, there were some issues. I look forward to the chance to have him back on and talk more about that and, and what it means for the project and what their goals are and what they're trying to do. But the fact that he got the first issue done and sent off to me, and it's quite gorgeous. I'm going to try and create a post on uh, my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller, and have that available for you to uh, glance at. I just want to make sure I clear with him how much we're sharing so I don't give away too much. Trust me, this is an issue you're going to want to get your hands on and read for yourself in your own digital copy. I think it's that good. I was really excited to hear about his success in completing it, and I understood his frustrations when it comes to not being able to get a printed copy completed by the deadline and within the frame that they were shooting for. In any case, I am more than anything excited and happy for him that he has this opportunity to take stock of what he's done, the issues that have arisen, and make a plan to go forward. I think creating original is very difficult, and I'm always moved by those who are able to accomplish that project and then take in all of that experience, make a plan to go forward, or make a decision about what to do next. Hearing his success was a great thing for me to enjoy, and I look forward to hopefully sharing a future episode with you about his project, where he's at, and what we can look forward to and hopefully anticipate in the near future. Now this next story has a bit to do with comics, but it also has as much to do with storytellers, creators, and more importantly, the visionaries who can change a medium simply by the act of writing a story. 
The example in this case is that of Alan Moore, a legendary comic icon, a writer who crafted some of the most original and thought-provoking stories behind characters such as Swamp Thing. His take on Batman twisted the concept of the Joker and the Bat family with the killing joke. His V for Vendetta has been quoted and recited as both a book and as a film. And his Watchmen was a comic book sensation that he created for the express purpose of destroying comic books as an industry. He was recently interviewed to promote an upcoming project known as The Show, a film which has ties to the short films he produced a few years ago. It's a film that's being released by Protagonist Pictures and was debuted online before getting a physical screening on October 12th. In response to the current environment of superheroes and comics, he has said that superhero movies have blighted the culture, while also admitting that he hasn't actually seen a superhero movie since Tim Burton's Batman 1989, a legendary fixture in comic book movie history. But Moore says in this interview that he's not so interested in comics anymore and doesn't want anything to do with them. In fact, he says that he had been doing comics for 40-something years when he finally retired, and that when he entered the comics industry, the big attraction was that it was a medium that was vulgar, that had been created to entertain working-class people, and particularly children, and that the change of the industry, its approach to concepts like graphic novels, was a pricing structure directed at an audience that was now middle-class people, to which he says he has nothing against them. But it wasn't meant to be a medium for them. It was meant to be a medium for people who haven't, in his own words, got much money. And he says that it was largely his work that attracted an adult audience. And it was the way that it was commercialized by the comics industry. Tons of headlines saying that comics had grown up. But other than a couple of particular individual comics, he felt that they really hadn't. And that this thing that happened with graphic novels in the 1980s was not as profound as it was presented. That people had wanted to keep on reading comics as they always had. And that they could do it in public and still feel sophisticated. Because they were no longer reading a children's comic. It goes on to point out that it's widely known that Alan Moore didn't want the Watchmen to be adapted. And in fact, Damon Lindelof, who I sometimes incorrectly pronounce as Damien, but have learned to try to do my best to say it the right way the first time, and that is Damon Lindelof, who was the man behind the wonderful Watchmen spinoff on HBO, has said that he thinks he may have to deal with some bad mojo from Alan Moore, who is also a practicing wizard. According to Lindelof, it wakes me up at night but much less so now that it's done. And I'm about to say something very ridiculous, but in all sincerity, I was absolutely convinced that there was a magical curse placed upon me by Alan Moore.
in a separate note, I was lucky enough to sit down with the great gang over at DC Comics News for a special interview, one-on-one, well, group-on-one, with Steve Orlando. And Steve Orlando told me that he believes that Alan Moore's people, because they told him so online, was placed under a curse for his decision to work on an Alan Moore project through DC Comics. And because he had deigned to touch a project that was off limits because it was Moore's creation and should no longer be addressed, and because he had taken a character like Promethea and worked it into his story, he was now no longer in their good graces, if he ever had been, but certainly was in their bad graces. And I'm amazed with this because it moves into another story about the creator of The Watchmen. And it's in response to the idea that since DC Comics acquired the rights of The Watchmen, they have begun recently to create new titles based on that universe, both before Watchmen and also in projects like Doomsday Clock. And more recently, Tom King, a writer who I have mentioned on here before and has proven his talent in numerous projects preceding this, including a legendary Batman run, and a few others like Heroes in Crisis, is releasing the first issue of Rorschach. And according to a second article about Alan Moore, this is something that Moore is not going to be pleased about, especially because he designed Watchmen to be a self-contained story with a clear beginning, middle, and end. And yet, fully admitting in this article that DC Comics owns the rights, which means the publisher has the opportunity to bring them to new stories and to introduce new stories about this universe, whether or not Alan Moore gives them approval. In response to this, Tom King points out that he believes he is doing much like Lindelof, and much like Alan Moore, who proceeded. In fact, in a quote regarding the upcoming Rorschach project, he says, Like the HBO Watchmen show, and very much like the original 86 Watchmen, this is a very political work. It's an angry work. We're so angry all the time. We have to do something with that anger. It's called Rorschach, not because of the character Rorschach, but because what you see in these characters tells you more about yourself than about them. Now, there is much debate over whether or not this story needs to be told, deserves to be told, and there are questions about why this story isn't being told without needing to connect to the original characters from The Watchmen. I'm intrigued to see how it develops. I can tell you in truth that I have read a preview issue, a digital first version of Rorschach, and it doesn't open with an easy answer. And I believe that maybe six to eight issues in, readers will still find themselves wondering how the connection can be made to the previous book or what new information it's trying to add and the reasons why. But I've also found that at the end of 12-issue maxi series that Tom King has done, whether it's Mr. Miracle, Vision, his current Strange Adventures, or now with Warshock, I do find a complete story, much like Alan Moore, attempted and completed with Watchmen. There is, with King, a clear beginning, a clear middle, a clear end, 
And because of that, and his passion for these characters, I'm curious to see what sort of ending we find ourselves at 12 issues down the road, and where in the legacy of The Watchmen, Rorschach will fit in. It's clear that Alan Moore has washed his hands of all of this, but I've actually heard from at least one person on DC Comics News when we've talked about HBO's The Watchmen, how this is a project that they wish Alan Moore would look into and consider because of how much it honors the original work that he created in 1986. However, at the moment, I do not personally believe that Mr. Moore will now, and potentially will never, be swayed. But for what he is unwilling to consider, I am, and I can honestly say I'm the better for it. Curious if you are too. Now, I love this story because it's a lighter side of so many things we are all facing. And it's a reminder of one of those great periods when I was young, just discovering comics and the Justice League became a favorite of mine. One of the reasons behind it is artist Kevin McGuire. He was the key behind most of the issues written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis Justice League and Justice League International in the 80s and the early 90s. And he recently went to social media with a new riff on a famous cover that really sort of stuck out for me and always was emblematic of that period in which the group is all lumped together looking up at a camera and smiling in a very structured, posed sitting His new version is themed for 2020 and features the group in their similar poses as you would have found them on that original Justice League cover, but instead being period accurate by maintaining social distance as well as wearing masks. The original Justice League of Guy Gardner, Batman, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Fire, Ice, Black Canary... Shazam, Maxwell Lord, Captain Adam, and Martian Manhunter are all featured. The number 2020 is laid out almost as if it's stretching away from the viewer or the reader, and together they strike classic poses that remind me of that original cover, and yet at the same time, feels as socially relevant now as it did back then. The thing that I love that this article reminds me about is how the purpose of that Justice League series was to present many of the situations and threats faced by the League as serious, but many of the characters making up the team essentially were characters in a workplace dramedy. And through it, you had the underlying stories of Maxwell Lord, who used the League to get rich, and Booster Gold, who was there to help with that, who teams up with Blue Beetle in a series of madcap, get-rich-quick schemes. Batman and Shazam came on to launch the series, but quickly left because they had more important things going on. And Batman, who faced down Guy Gardner's continued taunts and aggression with 
a one-punch knockout that is to this day famously termed One Punch. Seeing this now, reminded of those great stories, makes me want to go back and read all of them. But it also reminds me how much now I want to see Kevin Maguire in a more recent and relevant story and how prevalent he can be just through this really great example of his art. I love the idea of knowing there are things I'm looking forward to after I'm done recording an episode and things I'm looking forward to when I discover them to share with you on a next episode of Storytelling with Seth. And now it's time for a section that I've been using to wrap up each one of these most recent episodes. It has to do with a book titled The Complete Beatles Songs. The story is behind every track written by the Fab Four. It includes full lyrics for the first time, and the stories are told by Steve Turner. Now, matching each story up to each episode will be a challenge, and hopefully I don't repeat myself. Should I ever, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. For this episode, I decided to go with the song I Saw Her Standing There. And it comes with a really interesting story that starts with Paul composing the song one night in 1962 while driving back to his home in Allerton, Liverpool. He liked the idea of writing a song about a 17-year-old girl because he was conscious of the need to have songs that the group's largely female audience could relate to. Now, the story starts out that the original lyrics began with, she was just 17, never been a beauty queen, which sounded like a good rhyme at the time, but didn't really feel like it was making the impact that he won when he sat down with John Lennon. So they tried to come up with another line which rhymed, but also meant something, to which eventually John suggested, you know what I mean. Now, Paul was well aware of the fact that this could be seen as a verbal tick or as sexual innuendo. And that just a few years later in 69, Monty Python would record a sketch about innuendo, best known as Nudge Nudge, in which Eric Idle repeatedly uses Nudge Nudge, Wink Wink, and Know What I Mean in a pub conversation with a businessman played by Terry Jones. Now, while the girl's age could have been a poetic choice, being the only teen number with three syllables, or it could have been a knowing reference to the fact that 17 was safely over the UK age of sexual consent at the time, which was 16. However, there's also the fact that the melody is a bass riff basis that was stolen, potentially, from Chuck Berry's 1961 song, I'm Talking About You. Of course, there's also the possibility that the song could have been inspired by another Chuck Berry song, Little Queenie, in which Berry sees a girl who's, pardon me as I turn the page in order to complete this, not a minute over 17, standing by a record machine, looking like a model on the cover of a magazine. He wants to dance with her, and he sees her coming towards him. He gets lumps in his throat and wiggles in his knees. And according to this version, again, written by Steve Turner, the similarities between language and situation seem almost too close to be accidental. However, at the time of writing the song, Paul was dating Iris Caldwell, sister of local beat singer 
Rory Storm, whose group The Hurricanes featured Ringo Starr as a drummer. He would join the Beatles in August of 62. And just like the girl in the song, Iris was only 17 at the time when Paul saw her performing the twist at the Tower Ballroom in New Brighton. And as part of a dance trio called the Original King Twisters, Paul was apparently impressed by her legs because she was wearing fishnet stockings to draw attention to them and the fact that she was already a show business professional. I was struck by the idea behind these two approaches to where this song would have come from and what its meaning would have had. It starts out with an attempt by Paul to basically write a song that's going to appeal to his audience base. And by starting with a line that addresses a female member of his audience, potentially anyone listening to the song who can picture themselves as the person being viewed and admired by Paul McCartney. And then it moves into the need for a rhyming line better than Beauty Queen, to which John Lennon suggests something much more suggestive, and how even that process could all have been influenced by Chuck Berry, and one, two, or maybe more of his songs. But then to bring it back to the personal side of Paul's life, and the fact that he met a 17-year-old girl who was the sister of a boy who was in a a band and performing, and who he was struck by because of her early professional show business demonstration and quality. I, (laughs) I can see where all those personal connections and the influence of music and pop songs of his time or that he had grown up listening to or was impressed by could have all combined together. I'm curious what you think about this. I remember working as a young intern at a newspaper and a conversation, an argument began over Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. And my sports editor at the time chimed in that Chuck Berry was an original rock and roll creation and that Elvis Presley had simply stolen his works and advanced it because he had a name and a physique and an image that carried more widely across the mainstream. This seems to bring back the argument that perhaps all rock and roll was created by Chuck Berry. I'm not going to say for certain on that one. I know there are believers who will chime in immediately and suggest this is true. But what I'm struck by is the concept behind this song and how as I flip between the pages describing it, there are so many ways it came about, so many reasons for its creation and the fact that it's still something I'm having a good time talking about and a story I love sharing with you is a great way for me to wrap up this episode. And with that, this has been episode number 77 of Storytelling with Seth. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to go ahead and set this book down. Save it for another episode when we get a chance to come back and talk more about the great songs and the great creations that lead to the great stories we all love to share. I know that I really enjoyed sharing them with you. And if there's a question, comment, or something else entirely that you would love to share with me, you can find me on Twitter as one more singleton, Instagram as Seth the Writer. You can visit me at Seth Singleton Storyteller or choose the social media platform that you prefer and 
let me know what you're thinking, what your comment question is, and more importantly, if there's a story that you know needs to be on Storytelling with Seth, please find me on any of those platforms. Visit me on Anchor. Leave me a message. Whatever way you choose, don't let that story stay hidden. Share it with me, and I'd love the chance to share it with others. For now, thanks for listening. I look forward to sharing my next interview and more stories with you right here on Storytelling with Seth.